Good evening, and welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Halloween Special. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jackson Eflin. As we mentioned before, this is our Halloween special. This week, we'll be discussing 1931's Dracula, 1931's Frankenstein, and 1941's The Wolfman. And these are our quintessential vampire, Promethean, and werewolf movies, obviously. We, we decided to do this triple feature because these are kind of like the big three. They showed up in... A lot of films, a lot of sequels. Van Helsing, Alvin and the Chipmunks. You know, those those two pinnacles of understanding Western I, civilization. I was ta- thinking more like Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula. Yeah. <laughs> those also, I suppose. <laughs> you know, those classic universal monster crossovers in the 30s and 40s. But we wanted to get into these since none of their counterpart movies made it into round two of our bracket. And it seems weird to do a movie that's digging into the you know universal horror monsters without digging into you know the the big three, mm-hmm. the Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman of Universal. I think Iron Man, Captain America, and Thor are a better paradigm. You're probably right. <laughs> okay, so Thor is obviously the Wolfman. Um, I guess Frankenstein is probably Iron Man. Well, yeah, like you've got the science and like all that sort of stuff. And the which, drinking. Yeah, and then I guess Dracula is Captain America. I think. I think. Captain America has to be the, the Wolfman because he's been a werewolf at one point. And, and Thor being Dracula makes sense because Dracula is descended uh, from Donar and Wotan, according to the canon. Huh, interesting. Yeah, it's a whole speech. <laughs> Dracula as a book is fascinating, and I'm going to try not to be a Dracula fanboy the entire time we're talking about it. You couldn't even accomplish that during watching the movie. I was literally w- listening to Dracula on the drive home earlier. <laughs> not on purpose, but it came up in my shuffle because... The audiobook got put into my music file, so I'll just be, you know, like, a song from Kesha, a song from Magnetic Fields, 30 minutes of Dracula. The Count himself withdrew, saying, you will need after your journey to refresh yourself by making your toilet. <laughs> Which is just as enjoyable, it's exactly what you want. Yes. Out from his coffin, Rack's voice did ring. Seemed he was troubled by just one thing. Opened the lid and shook his fist and said... Whatever happened to my Transylvania twist? It's now the man. Dracula. It's now the monster. 1931. Now, this is officially the oldest film we've talked about on the podcast. Yeah. It beats out The Mummy by a year and Frankenstein, which we'll be talking about a little bit later, by about six months. In fact, Frankenstein didn't even start filming or conceived of until after Dracula came out and was a huge success for Universal. And they're like, yep, more monster movies. And we'll get into how James Whale hashtag did that in a little bit. But for now, we got to focus on Dracula. That's where it all started. With some armadillos. Gods, the armadillos. They wanted to make Transylvania look exotic, so they put some armadillos in, um, in Dracula's caverns. Because... We're not going to summarize Dracula. Presumably you roughly know the story already, but it is weird to me that the role of Jonathan Harker is here played by Renfield. Yeah, you mentioned that. All these things were happening, and you're like, oh yeah, like there's John Harker, and then it's revealed, oh, no, that's Renfield. <laughs> it is jarring to me. This movie really felt like Renfield needed to be more of a character, which is baffling because Renfield needs to be less of a character. 
Yeah, like, the film starts off, like, really slow, getting all of the stuff with Renfield set up. It's also really weird, because we're in Transylvania, and it's, like, very much stuck in the mid-1800s. Very traditional village and whatnot, and... Then you've got Renfield there, who is a like very obviously a contemporary 1930s man, just walking around with his suit and hat and everything, and it feels so out of place. And it's that way in the book too, but the book came out in the late 1890s, and a 40-year separation is not too ridiculous, especially if you're talking about like rural communities, which are somewhat less with the times. Mm-hmm. But here it's almost a century gap, which is beyond pastiche and into the ridiculous. It's actually something I appreciate about uh, the, the one with Gary Oldman and Keanu Reeves. When they go to England, it's distinctly Victorian England. And we get to this beautiful map painting with a beautiful ca- castle set inside of it, and Bela Lugosi is acting hard. Yeah, Bela Lugosi is just chewing on scenery. Which, I mean, he has fangs. I, I would, too. And they really have to explain that Dracula's drink blood, so Renfield gets a paper cut or a paper clip cut or something. He, he punctures himself, and Dracula's like, Ugh. I really want to bring up the similar scene in the movie that we're going to be talking about next week, but we haven't announced that yet. <laughs> There's also just this weirdness to Dracula's cadence dealing with Renfield. Like, I never drink. Why? This very odd pausing that gives this mystery to him, and I think it works. I mean, presumably this is a character whose first language is not English. Yes. Whose first language may in fact no longer be spoken by anybody living. So I think that works. It do- and it does you know, make him more creepy. It also kind of pushes him more into the exotic, and definitely Dracula has some troubles with like exotification and villainy. Although some of that exoticness is just kind of tied up in the aristocracy and importing ideas and things from other places to be ostentatious. Um, speaking of importing things, Dracula just brings his three boxes of earth with him, and I assume that was going to be his brides, but nope, they stay there. They are very superfluous in this movie. Yeah, we get a scene of them when Renfield like goes to sleep at Dracula's castle, and then they are never mentioned or seen again. This movie really needed a soundtrack. Oh yeah, it's so very odd. Like We get some music in the beginning with the credits, and then it's nothing. And unfortunately, the audio quality due to the technology and the age is really dirty and so there's these like long drawn out silences to hold the tension but you just hear the fizzling of the audio equipment and them picking up noise and it's really unfortunate did eventually get a soundtrack though right who was that in 1998 composer philip glass was commissioned to compose a musical score for the film it released the next year on uh, vhs and on releases for dvd it's been an option to play with or without the soundtrack and I think if there'd be more time, I would have liked to listen to that, but uh, yeah, busy. Yeah, and it felt more appropriate to view it in as original a format as possible. For sure. So I want to talk about Lucy. Okay. Um, who, Lucy's one of my favorite women in fiction, at least in the book, and I'm glad that this one does her a pretty good job. Like, she's as close as you can be to being a goth girl in 30s London. Dracula just, like, you know, shows up at the theater and is like, Ah, yes, death. The Abbey always reminds me of that old toast about lofty timbers, the walls around our bare, echoing to our laughter as though the dead were there. Papa cup 
to the dead already. Hurrah for the next to die. Oh, never mind the rest, dear. <laughs> <laughs> to die. To be really dead. That must be glorious. I will say, Mina and Lucy are the first characters that feel like actual people and not cardboard cutouts. Oh, for sure. Specifically at the scene, yeah, after the scene you mentioned where they introduce them uh, to Dracula, Mina and Lucy are like in one of their rooms, like doing girl talk and like talking about uh, Lucy's crush on the count. (laughs) And it just feels so real. Love all you like. I think he's fascinating. Oh, I suppose he's all right. But give me someone a little more normal. The dialogue is stiff the way everyone else was. It's like they were the only ones who were allowed to kind of like live in that space. Mm-hmm. But also Lucy gets dead and presumably gets vampired, but like no one addresses that. Like no one, she's just out there being the blue for lady. Yeah, she like wanders off in the middle of the night and then it's the next morning and we're informed that she died. Mm-hmm. They, we don't even see it on screen. It's ridiculous. And we do have, like, a scene of a guy reading a newspaper talking about... Further attacks on small children committed after dark by the mysterious woman in white took place last night. You never find out who that is. Mm-hmm. Which I get, you know, in the book it's a whole arc of, like, all of Lucy's boyfriends just clubbing up to, like, kill her vampire version. Which is not great. It's not kind of a hard thing to show even in pre-code Hollywood. So I get skipping that, but it sort of course corrected a little too far. When we mentioned pre-code, we're talking about is in 19, I believe 33, there was a code that Hollywood films had to adhere to for content and like morality's sake. If you're familiar with the comics code from just a decade or two later, it's pretty similar to that and it wouldn't get lifted for a number of decades. There's this short little spot of Hollywood pre-code, you know, that we get stuff from, like, the early 30s and the 20s, and then after that is all post. Mm-hmm. The first Legend of Kiss in Cinema was a movie that came out a year before this, and then we didn't have any more for about 40 years. Yup. <sighs> a lot happens in this movie, but a lot of it doesn't feel impactful because they're trying to get through so much of this really thick, dense book so fast. Yeah, there's a lot of people just in rooms expositing towards each other, and there's also just so much stuff with Renfield that we don't need, especially since we as an audience already know everything that's going on with him, that, you know, he's been enslaved by Dracula and is working for him, and that's why he's acting the way he is, but we still have so many scenes of people trying to figure out what's exactly wrong with him, why does he like to eat spiders, Mm-hmm. Which I think are all fun, meaty scenes for all the actors involved because they get to bounce off each other. There's the Cockney orderly who's having a good time. It feels more like this is Dwight Fry's Oscar reel for a lot of it, and I don't need it. Especially since, as you said, we know what's going on. Yeah. There's a character treading water for a while. Yeah. Honestly, the only scene with Renfield after they find him at the bottom of the boat. There's this scene of him, like, crawling on all fours towards the camera. Oh, that scene is so good. It is. Like, the way it's that scene is framed and the motion that is going on, it's so creepy and unsettling. And it's just like he's creeping towards Mia, who is fainted because she's a woman. And that's just how women worked in the 1900s. Yeah. It's so interesting how well that is done in comparison to a lot of Bella Lugosi's movements for Dracula, which feels so stiff and artificial. 
I mean, they had very small sets, so they couldn't really have him, like, sweeping across the room the way he would need to to really get the sense of the menace and the cape. I get that. Even when he's first interacting with Renfield, he's, like, pouring the wine or creeping up on him after he cuts his finger. Just everything is just so slow. He feels like he's a marionette as opposed to a living being. I think that's kind of my summary for a lot of the film, is there are a number of incredibly good scenes that just don't all work like mm. Renfield creeping the two girls talking um the stare down between Van Helsing and Dracula god yeah where there's this battle of wills going on and they all they can do is just do the acting with it mm-hmm. which yeah that stuff works in the slowness and so you have all these like scenes that are really good but they're in this very fast-paced plot so they don't feel impactful because so much of the plot is just people saying things we said some more things about Snow White but this feels more like a stage play than a film Yeah. And that makes sense for the time period because they were still figuring out what worked on film as opposed to in theater and what didn't. Heck, Dracula was a stage play about two months after it came out as a book because Bram Stoker was a theater guy. Mm -hmm. Like, it makes sense that it is like this. It just doesn't work in a film that's what, like 80 minutes long? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. There's a bit that is weirdly funny they're looking at Mina and her her neck that is at this point uh been wounded in some mysterious way and Van Helsing's like how long have you had those little marks marks since the morning after the dream what could have caused them professor Count Dracula and you see that it's just the servant announcing him coming to the room there's a lot of characters saying Count Dracula like it's a normal thing to say which I know that for them it is but for us mm-hmm. in the modern day, Count Dracula is one of the most famous character things in fiction. Yeah, like up there with like Mickey Mouse. Yeah, weird, <laughs> weird uh, buddy cop road trip movie. <laughs> uh, one last thing I, I have to talk about for this film. There are a number of scenes where Dracula turns into a bat. <laughs> I knew you were going to bring this up. And it's just a rubber bat on a string. But the effect is so, so cheap and awful looking. Like, I get that they have limited abilities. It's 1931. Film is a very new medium still, but it is so ridiculously bad looking. I kind of wish they just dropped the bat part from the books. It's in there, but you don't strictly need it for all the things that are happening in this plot. You could have just had it be its own thing. It feels very goofy. Yeah, And Dracula needs to not feel goofy. That's an important part of Dracula. Yeah. I think part of the reason why it's so bad is because they use it so often, like they're proud of it. Right. And you know what? It, they may be proud of it. That may have been excellent effects work back in 31, but it just feels so very hokey and dated now. Right. There is one bit with a bat that I think works. Um, So a lot of times when a bat doesn't work, it's because the camera is just stationary or watching a bat being flopped up and down by somebody standing on a crane with a stick. But there's a scene where the bat is flying over Mina's head while she's sitting outside on a bench and... Yes? Look out, he'll get in your hair. Yes? My hair is a big bat. I will. You will? Why? And it's a creepy way of showing that Mina is falling under the sway of Dracula because she doesn't realize what's happening. That scene works, but also the bat is barely on screen, so we see like a flicker of motion at the corners, mm. which is where it needed to be. Mm. Once again, Mina is doing all the work on this movie. Mm. I mean, I don't want to like delegitimize Bela Lugosi, you know, 
famous horror actor. But I mean, it definitely is just kind of a bunch of men standing in rooms trying to come up with a plan to accomplish things and then nothing happens for a good chunk of the movie and then it's over. Pretty much. Dracula is a very long book. A lot happens and they're limited by what they're doing, but unfortunately it just doesn't hold up that well. Mm. That said, there's never really been that good of an adaption of Dracula that was trying to follow the book pretty closely. Mm -hmm. People have tried to varying levels of success, but it's it might just be that it just does not work on film. You know, we, we talk about this in private a lot, about a lot of books will not do as well for movies, but they will work much better as miniseries just because you need a longer time to set up characters and set up plots and have slow burn type conflicts. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably the case with Dracula. Yeah, but if you're going to do a TV series adaption of Dracula, you have to have him not also be Tesla. Someone five or so years ago tried to do Dracula as a TV show, but also Dracula is a pioneer of technology and is trying to invent wireless light bulbs. That's too much. Also, he's dating a sexy vampire huntress. Because of course he is. Who doesn't know that he's a vampire, even though, you know, her whole job is hunting vampires? She has one job, and it's staking Dracula as opposed to being staked by Dracula. But on the bright side, Lucy Westenra is played by Katie McGrath, so the whole thing is very good. Dearest Mina, do not shed a single tear for Jonathan Harker. Honestly, there's no point in wasting a single minute more thinking about what an awful twitch he turned out to be. Not when you could be having fun with me instead. Starting at the Savoy and arriving fashionably late at the Officers' Club Ball, where the men should be delicious if a little too well-behaved. There was also, I think like a year or so ago, that uh, Nosferatu adaptation with Zachary Quinto. I never got around to checking that out. It looked interesting. Maybe you'll hear about that on a future podcast. Mm-hmm. Who knows? I know Zachary Quinto. But speaking of queer subtext, let's talk about Frankenstein. <laughs> Show me a non-queer subtext thing with Zachary Quinto in it. I can't. <laughs> there we go. See? I was working in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight for my monster from his slab began to rise and suddenly to my surprise, he did the match. He did the monster. Yeah, so Frankenstein, also 1931, was rushed into production after Dracula because it did gangbusters. And I think it's a way stronger film. The script is way stronger. The characters are way stronger. The narrative is way tighter. And they just did that like that mm. with this very hard to adapt book as well. So good job, James Whale. I mean, part of it is they toss in this romance marriage subplot between Henry Frankenstein. <laughs> Who has a brother named Victor, and it's very confusing. Uh, not a brother, just like a family friend named Victor. Mm, sure. And his love interest, and his dad is upset that he's run off to, you know, this old abandoned watchtower due to his experience. It's like, nope, obviously it's another woman. Frankenstein's dad is this weirdly wacky character in an otherwise kind of dark movie. The book goes from, like, Frankenstein being conceived all the way to the thing in Antarctica. This jumps straight to when Frankenstein's already in the process of making the creature, which was a good choice. We don't need that preamble. It also gives him... It's not Igor here. What is it? Fritz. Fritz, the hunchback. Who's just an asshole. Who is the worst, yes. This film might not have been a tragedy if it weren't for Fritz. Most adaptions of Frankenstein have all realized that the monster would be a totally well-adjusted person if people didn't take one look at him and decide that he's a monster and poke him with sticks and fire. It's that. It's not even the fact that Fritz dropped the good brain and had to take the backup one. (laughs) Yeah. This is why we need humanities in the STEM fields. (laughs) 
Oh, yeah. So this does add the weird, dumb thing where um, there are two brains, and one of them normal, one of them a murder brain. Here we have one of the most perfect specimens of the human brain that has ever come to my attention at the university. And here the abnormal brain of the typical criminal. Uh, and Fritz drops the glass jar with the normal brain in it, so he's got to take the murder one. This is the brain of a killer, Bella. <laughs> Um, oh. And that maybe makes Frankenstein's monster, you know, a monster, but it's not really confirmed. I'm not too upset with them adding that very dumb thing in it because I love the way that it's parodied in Young Frankenstein. Right. <laughs> it's just part of the canon now, and I, I accept that and enjoy that. It helps push the movie into this farce territory that Frankenstein's dad does. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the teetering between farce and tragedy is a really good place for this. Mm -hmm. Another interesting thing about this film is a Originally, Frankenstein's monster was not supposed to have redeeming qualities that are just a, you know, cold-blooded murderer abomination. And that's actually one of the reasons why Bella Lugosi, who was originally cast as the monster, they brought on a new director, changed around the script, incorporated more of that redemptive quality from the original work, and they cast Boris Karloff as the monster. Yeah, James Whale was adamant about the humanity of the monster, which I think is really important. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's just a really boring, I've made a monster and it murders me movie. So James Whale was a noted queer, and so the film gets a lot of queer subtext and empathy for outsiders, which we've talked about with Shape of Water a lot. And there's a specific edit that was the case for a long time. So at one point after the monster has gotten out into the world, he meets a little girl, makes friends with her, and they're just throwing flowers into the water, and it's very sweet. See how mine floats? Well, then they run out of flowers, so he just throws the girl into the water, because like, oh, more things to throw. They'll float too. And she can't swim and she drowns, and it's very sad. In the post-code era, that scene was removed, so all we got was just Frankenstein staring at a little girl and then cutting to her being dead, and so it's unclear what happened. James Whale was really upset about that, because already there was this conversation about the, like, queer allegory of the monster and without that it fed into this like cultural understanding of queer men as uh Pre sexual predators yeah as predatory to children especially mm -hmm. and without that scene it has that squirky undertone as opposed to this very tragic thing that happens yeah this very childlike intelligence uh, tragedy like he just doesn't understand what's happening and that's the problem even in the unedited version after he throws the little girl in we, we get like one shot of her struggling in the water and then he runs away and we cut away and it's honestly incredibly abrupt. I get it. I don't want to watch a child drown, but she yeah. definitely had like vibranium bones or something. Yeah, especially since she got tossed like maybe two or three feet from the shore. <laughs> why, why did you build your house near this 40 foot drop off point into the water? Yeah, it would have made much more sense if it was like on a bridge or something. Yeah. This gives us that really great scene of the dad just walking through the streets holding this child and we have this long take of all the people stopping their dancing and just staring at him and following him to the House of Frankenstein. And it's chilling and sad and amazing and the actor's doing a great job there just selling this like, like he's like clocked out. He's walking because he just doesn't know what to do with himself and it's so good. Should also point out that they're not walking to a House of Frankenstein because they blame Frankenstein. Most people don't know like what's going on with the whole monster and whatnot. 
Uh, it's because the mayor's there. Yeah. And they want to, you know, start a torches and pitchfork mob to get rid of whoever did this. And so they need the mayor's approval. Slightly better <laughs> than just an unregulated torches and pitchfork mob. I am really intrigued by the way that even though they're looking for justice, the torches and pitchfork mob is still presented as very scary. It's not like in Birth of a Nation when, like, the KKK is a torch and pitchfork mob and they're presented as, like, this, like, victorious hero thing. Like, this is, like, the fact that the populace has gone to a frenzy so fast is shown as everyone is monsters thing. Mm -hmm. And it plays into the themes really well of this man as being just as monstrous as undead thing. I agree with all of that. However, the whole search for the monster in the mountains is so long and aimless and boring right well they're in the mountains we don't really have any geography so they're just wandering back and forth through the sets that will one day become star trek we don't know where anybody is in relation to anything else so it doesn't feel like we're moving towards anything we're just watching people run back and forth however that does give us frankenstein and the monster meeting and having this stare down with all this loaded emotion in their gaze i don't know what they're feeling but i know they're feeling a lot of things and i'm sharing in their feelings and i don't fully understand why that scene hits me so hard but colin clive and boris karloff are reaching into the depths of themselves for whatever it is they're reaching for very good there's also an additional one after they move to the windmill which eventually gets set on fire there's these wooden slats for the windmill to turn to actually mill the flower and frankenstein and the monster are look looking through those at each other and it's such a well done shot it's framed beautifully and there's only like two or three feet between them but the all the added machinery in between them just increases this huge gulf that they just don't understand each other mm -hmm. but they want to i want to circle back to colin clive's acting he does a really good job of teetering just on the edge of hollywood madness mm -hmm. um but manic yeah, of Manic, yeah. Like, he does a good job of teetering on the edge of Manic, but being clearly very intelligent, but just more about coulda than shoulda. Like, there's a bit where he talks about how he... At first I experimented only with dead animals, and then a human heart, which I kept beating for three weeks. Okay, horrifying, deeply terrifying, what the fuck? But the way he talks about it, like, it's this great milestone victory is really haunting and eerie. Yeah, this performance, like, solidifies the mad scientist archetype until now it's such a wonderful performance and he's putting all he's got into it that body is not dead it has never lived i created it i made it with my own hands from the bodies i took from graves from the gallows anywhere go and see for yourself one sort of like Interesting history, techie thing. At one point, uh, the monster enters the room through the door and we get a couple increasingly close-ups of him. It's edited in a way to feel like it's a zoom, but it's not a zoom. And it, it's rough because zoom lenses were not commercially available yet. They wouldn't be commercially available for film cameras until the next year. <laughs> and I just, I love that. It's like, we can't do this so we're gonna try our best to fake it because the technology literally doesn't exist yet. I think while this movie does a lot of changing, I think it does a good job of capturing the spirit of what the book was trying to get at in a lot of cases, which mm -hmm. I think is why it works for Dracula doesn't, because Dracula is trying to be very faithful to the letter of the book, whereas uh, Frank's not very faithful to the spirit of the book, which is, is more important for adapting a novel. Yeah, especially since there's no way you're going to get 
everything that novel has in it onto the screen. It's just not possible. It's the way you're conveying information is very different. Mm -hmm. And so going for the feel as opposed to the exact words on the page works better. That's when we see the best adaptations. The party had just begun. The guests included Wolfman. Let's talk about the Wolfman. There's a big jump between Frankenstein and the Wolfman. I mean, you've got 10 years, but the understanding of how films are supposed to look and feel is much different. And in general, the Wolfman is much smoother on that technical level than the previous two films. Patton's Corner. Patton's Corner. So pedantic. It's also worth noting, this is not technically the first like universal werewolf movie. Um, there's a Werewolf of London that came out a few years before, but this is kind of the one that stuck. This one just worked better. Characters carried on, even the man who was pure of heart, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. This is the one that got loosely remade in 2010. Yeah. In fact, the actor who's playing the Wolfman here, Lon Chaney Jr., portrayed the Wolfman for every single one of his 1940s appearances. Yeah. And he was incredibly proud of that fact. He felt like the Wolfman was his baby. I think with Dracula and Frankenstein, people kind of know the plot. Uh, with the Wolfman, it's your pretty standard werewolf movie, but it goes in for the tragic by having Larry Talbot's dad be the one who kills him at the end, because you can't tell who it is under all the wolf makeup. Yak hair. This is not a happy ending movie in any way. It's a downer, honestly. Yeah, I actually appreciate that it's a downer. Oh yeah, I think that works really well. And honestly, I think this has the best, most fully realized ending of any of the three films. And that's mostly just because they now know how to pace an ending and they didn't in the 30s. It's a thing that we've constantly griped about for a lot of the older films that we've been watching. Mm -hmm. They just end. Also, The Wolfman has beautiful cinematography. I mean, there's good shots in Dracula, great shots in Frankenstein and all that jazz, but the Wolfman really knows how to use its juxtaposition of these claustrophobic trees and dry ice. So much dry ice fog. It works though, it sets the mood for, you know, you know, foggy whales. Yeah. They also, in general, with Frankenstein and Dracula, there's this tendency to just have a stationary camera set the scene and then your actors are moving around in it. Whereas in The Wolfman, they're much more open to having the camera move around with the actors and it, the camera is just much more dynamic. Which I think helps add to the kind of murky quality of the movie. Mm -hmm. Not not that it's like visually murky, but the characters waver between good and evil and there's this unease in the air and all the fog and stuff. It works. Yeah, there's this like layer of obfuscation over everything. And this movie's going hard on the whole, the Wolfman is a metaphor for the evil in all mankind. And by all mankind, I mean straight men. Yeah, Larry's trash. Within the first few scenes of the film, he is using a telescope to spy on a woman in her room. She's thankfully fully clothed, but then he uses that information to creep her out and say that he's a psychic to try and get her to go out with him. Tell me, how did you know about the earrings in my room? Oh, I'm psychic. Every time I see a beautiful girl, I know all about her. Just like that. He's also doing this while she is working. As, don't hit on women while they're working. No. If they hit on you, give them their, your number and then walk away. Let them call you on their own time. But she was definitely not. Also, she's engaged. To be fair, he did not know that. I'm not going to fault him too much for that until he, she tells him that and then he continues to pursue. Right. There's also the shop where he buys... A stick with a silver handle. The first of the 5,000 obvious symbolisms. 
Yep, it's got a wolf head and a pentagram on it. <laughs> drink every time they say wolf. <laughs> I'm also drink every time somebody recites the entirety of a man being pure at heart. Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Everyone in this town is like really into this whole werewolf mythology thing, which I totally get if a werewolf was like a local phenomenon, but... The werewolf who bites Larry Talbot is a traveler from out of town with uh, a Romani caravan. It's not like they're all living in fear of the wolf. They're just all super into it. Also, and then when someone brings up the possibility of a werewolf, no one fucking believes them. <laughs> it's like if you live in Transylvania and you know a lot about vampire mythology, but you also don't believe in vampires. Which I guess is the thing that now everyone in Transylvania probably actually does have in their lives because, you know, Dracula is very famous. So I'm sorry to all of Transylvania. Transylvania doesn't exist anymore. Sure, but I'm sure the region still has that thing. Kind of like how Real World Forks like known as being the vampire town. Another major difference between this film and the two from 31 is the violence that is portrayed. With the exception of the wolfman going after Gwen and then Sir John Talbot beating the wolfman, a lot of the violence is just really poor in this film. It's less cinematic fighting and more aggressive hugging <laughs> yes it is exactly that you got that problem where lon cheney jr has to fight a wolf but also they can't have the budget for a wolf or like a stunt dog so it's just him like shaking a stuffed animal behind a tree still a better wolf effect than wolf 1994 Ooh, burn <laughs> Well, speaking of aggressive hugging, who boy, uh, Larry Talbot is not super great about the consent. I think after watching this, I have a much better understanding of what they were trying to do in Wolf and why this archetype is so prevalent in the genre of werewolf movies. Right. It's the whole, like, you know, the, the, the beast in all men thing, but it just... You have to understand how beastly he's being, and I really don't think they do. It is also one of the reasons why there's so much overlap between this werewolf stuff and, like, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde type stuff. Because right. they're dealing with some of the same themes, just in slightly different ways. Right, and we are kind of within a year of the the big uh, Jekyll and Hyde movie of this time period. So I get mm -hmm. how that would be in the cultural beast. I do want to praise the film for a few things, though. The Wolfman walks Digigrade. Yeah, God, I love that. So Lon Chaney is, like, walking on the balls of his feet. It's a minor detail, but I appreciate it a lot. Also, the facial acting is fantastic, both with the makeup and without it. While Larry Talbot's going through all of these changes and is... He keeps waking up and doesn't remember how he got there, and he's really concerned about what he's been doing, and people are telling him, yeah, you're... a you know, you've got this old Romani woman telling him, yeah, you're a werewolf. You're a, a werewolf, wizard, Harry. And, like, learning more about what all that entails. He is struggling, and it is visually apparent, and it's really compelling. Like, while we're going to talk smack about Larry Talbot as a character, Lon Chaney is amazing. He has this awkward largeness to him. He's he's just very tall. And it helps him when he's being the wolfman, because he's, like, you know, he's much more visually intimidating as that, mm -hmm. which you kind of need. It would be weird if you're, like, this kind of like, small guy with fur. Mm -hmm. um, but it also makes him kind of feel... Uh, it makes him loom in a lot of scenes, which helps because he is a monster and knows he's a monster and has to interact with a town that is becoming aware that he's a monster. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of not great of his time Romani stuff. Yeah, uh, and we mentioned that uh, a little bit in Wolf when we talked about the Indian Doctor character kind of being a stand-in for the traditional Romani character that would normally be there. Uh, it's 
unfortunately has kind of become baked into the genre and it's shitty i will say that while this movie isn't like hashtag great it does give the romani a lot of humanity they are not flat evil antagonists that they could have been they're not like inherently scary they're not like wolf cults or something they are people who have clearly been living with this and dealing with this for a long time and so i appreciate that this movie made in 1941 didn't think of romani people as undeserving of empathy mm-hmm. it's it, but it still definitely falls into the whole like mystical romani thing but it does better than the nazis were doing at the time so points for that i guess i i, I guess <laughs> better than nazis is a low bar low but- ass bar but you cleared it, so yeah. not all of our media can say the same today. So, weird thing I want to talk about. Sure. So, throughout this bracket, we have been complaining about the age of actors when cast uh, next to each other. I honestly didn't even look at Lon Chaney's age compared to Evelyn Ankers, who plays Gwen, his love interest. I was too concerned of, like, Larry being really icky and predatory and, like whatever it makes sense for an older man to do that no matter what so he's 10 years older still looking predatory it's not as bad as wolf i guess yeah it's definitely better than a lot of stuff however the weird age thing that i want to harp on here is there's only seven years of difference between claude rains who is playing sir john talbot and lon cheney jr who's playing larry talbot they are father and son uh lon cheney is closer to claude rains's age than he is evelyn anchor's age yeah. One thing I think would have worked is if, if this film was doing the whole hereditary werewolf thing, mm-hmm. it would make sense to have a actor on the young side playing the father and, you know, the wolf gives this, like, youthful virility that keeps you young longer. That would have been an interesting thing to do. How old were you? How old are you now? Not as young as we could have been, but not as old as you might think. Okay, that was frustratingly vague. How old are you? I'm 17. See, that's an answer. That's how we answer people. Well, 17, how you measure in years. All right, I'm just going to drop it. They don't do that here. They just wanted a prestigious English actor to play the dad and Lon Chaney playing the wolf man. And this happened to work out, I guess. Maybe when you're invisible, you don't age. Claude Rains was the invisible man. Ah, okay. Claude Rains was the invisible man. It is very difficult to suspend your disbelief when Claude Rains is calling Lon Chaney, who towers above him, (laughs) son. (laughs) I at least hope that Claude Rains got a kick out of doing that, though. Oh, I'm sure. Offering Lon Chaney, like, piggyback rides and stuff. (laughs) Offering to throw around the old pigskin. Uh, This movie is very odd about location. Everyone has a British accent except Lon Chaney, who has an American accent, but also they're in Wales. They do, at least. Larry is coming back from being in America for a while, so it kind of makes sense that his accent is different, but everyone else's accents do not make sense. It would have been more appropriate if they said it, like, just outside of London. Yeah. But I guess they didn't want to overlap with Wolfman of London. (laughs) Sorry, Werewolf of London. There are so many movies that are some juxtaposition of the words London, man, and wolf. Like, if you want to get into... this we're technically have an american werewolf in the united kingdom right i'm sure he came via london that's probably where the boat arrives he was on the demeter or some shit there is a glorious overacting scene where the wolf band is caught in a bear trap and um old romani lady shows up to uh release him because she pities him i guess i mean her husband i guess was the one who turned him. But also, presumably you know the amount of damage he's going to do, and you just really want the British to... Oh, 
Oh, this is retribution. Okay, sure. <laughs> they probably deserve it. People living in the UK in the 40s, yeah, they probably deserve it. The scientific name for it is lycanthropia. It's a variety of schizophrenia. Uh, that's all Greek to me. Well, it is Greek. It's a technical expression for something very simple. The good and evil in every man's soul. So, we can get into most movie magic, I guess. Uh, yeah. I think I'm good to go. Sure. So we've got Dracula, we've got Frankenstein, and we've got the Wolfman. I think in ascending order of monster movie magic. I mean, let's let's be honest here. While the makeup on the Wolfman definitely by today's standards looks hokey, it totally works here, and it honestly holds up pretty well. Yeah, I mean, it looks hokey, but also that's pretty much what a person would look like if they were just covered in fur. So sure, yeah. Eight to ten hours to put on, and there's a number of lap fade shots where they took a frame or two, brought Lon Chaney back over to makeup, applied a little bit more of his hair and whatnot, and then brought him back for another few frames of shot and just kept doing that. Some of those took like ten hours to film. At the very end, Lon Chaney's turning back from Wolfman to just man-man and it looks like about six or seven distinct iterations and I think it really works for that scene because you're kind of cutting from that to his dad looking sad and realizing what's happening and the horror on his dad's face and the tragedy of that scene is amped up by the slowness where it wouldn't be if it was just kind of a quick that's what it sounds like when a when a wolfman turns into a man-man so as far as technical proficiency I I definitely think the wolfman has it and like just all the small things like having him like walk digigrade and all that stuff is great Frankenstein, I think, is mostly, I'm going to put in the middle, mostly because of how iconic that makeup has become and how much it's informed the character of Frankenstein's monster. Mm. Like, the whole flat top, the bolts on the neck. Mm. I think also beyond that, the mm-hmm. iconicness of Frankenstein's laboratory, on yes. top of the windmill, it's, there's a very specific vibe to it, and that became the vibe of Mad Science Laboratories basically forever. That's what it looks like now, which is great. There's a kind of exposed ramshackleness to it that belies Frankenstein's ramshackle mind. Kenneth Strickfaden was the man who designed the electrical effects that were used like during that creation scene in, in for Frankenstein's laboratory. And they were so successful that they just became bog standard for Universal Monster Films. They were just so iconic that in fan circles, the equipment used to produce them began to be called Strickfadens. Also, one of the Tesla coils that was used in that scene was built by Nikola Tesla himself. Dude, awesome. Yeah. I feel like not enough thing. I'm sure it's been done, but not enough things bring Frankenstein and Tesla together. That makes way more sense than Tesla and Dracula. <laughs> Speaking of which, Belagosi doing fine. It's a very iconic look, but because, you know, Dracula's just a man with fangs, he doesn't get to be that much of a makeup effect. Yeah. And honestly, I think his costuming is a little too ostentatious. Uh, Like I mentioned while we were watching this film, Dracula is definitely a a sabbat. He has no interest in, like, keeping up the masquerade. Yeah. And then also the bats. Yeah, the bats are... Very bad. They obviously could have been better. They There are a few shots where they are better and they're used more sparingly, but they were really proud on those rubber bats on a stick. Let's separate like makeup and visual effects and all that jazz from the actors. Who do you think is the best actor here for their respective roles between Bela Lugosi, Boris Karloff, and Lon Chaney Jr.? I mean, Bela Lugosi kind of is also in The Wolfman, so it gets a bit of like a, a cheat in there, but let's ignore yeah. that role. God, that's so difficult because they're all very different roles and each of the actors do 
wonderful jobs with them. Like, Boris Karloff is in a completely nonverbal role. He has very limited ability to actually act. He can only pantomime and, like, grunt mm-hmm. and, you know, whatever he's doing with his, his face and emotions. And he gets across this pain and this hurt and this childlike wonder from the monster that is incredibly impressive. Yeah, I've already talked about Lon Chaney and his facial acting and the, you know, struggle that Larry Talbot's going through as a man outside of, you know, being the wolf. And, you know, then you have Bella Lugosi, who is just so iconic in that role and set the stage for what the Dracula accent sounded like, what the mannerisms are like, you know, the slicked back hair, the costuming. If I had to pick one, I'm probably going to go with Bella Lugosi. Sure. I don't have an answer. I'm just curious what, they, what you thought. They're all so good that I'm not I'm not picky. Yeah, like, if, if we're going for, like, iconicness, I've got to go with Bella Lugosi. I think if we're going with technical acting skill, I think I'm going to go with Lon Chaney. Sure. And if we're going with Boris Karloff, I'll go with Boris Karloff. <laughs> Everybody gets a trophy. <laughs> Speaking of getting trophies, uh, of the three, I think I prefer Frankenstein the most. Yeah, like this one is a little tough for me. Dracula, I just kind of got bored with. I don't think it's a very well-structured film. They get caught in these cul-de-sacs with Renfield, and it's just not interesting all the way through. It has good parts, but overall, it's not a good film. I enjoy Frankenstein. It's a very solid and it avoids a lot of the problems that Dracula has and I think the Wolfman does an even better job but it also has much more problematic elements than either of the other two with the predatory nature of Larry towards Gwen and with the shitty stuff going on with the Romani I think I'm gonna have to agree and like of the three I think Frankenstein is holds up the best Right. And it's a pity because I think if the stuff with The Wolfman wasn't like that, it would be such a knockout film, but it just it just brings it down just enough. Yeah. And it, it's also really unfortunate how baked into the genre they are now because of it. Right. And that uh, closes out the Universal Monsters. We have completed our Monster Mash. He did the mash. He did the Monster Mash. The Monster Mash. It was a graveyard smash. He did the now we never have talked about any more problematic werewolves for the rest of our lives. What's up next week? Uh, I hate to break this to you, but we have another special episode. The curious amongst you might have looked into the domestic grosses on some of the films that we talked about for the bracket and noticed that we had to skip down on a few categories because the best vampire film and the best werewolf film are actually the same. Are they? What are they? Uh, the Twilight Saga. All five of them. Oh. (laughs) Great. She may need her toes someday. And let's face it, I am hotter than you. We are going to kind of finish off our spooky episodes with a special episode discussing all five of the Twilight films. And if that doesn't sound interesting to you, we do also have a special guest joining us next week. Uh, We are bringing on the incomparable Sarah Hollowell, who will bring a perspective to Twilight that I think it definitely needs. Yes. Be sure to check out that collaboration next week. Um, As we mentioned in our previous episode, after that, we're probably going to slow down for the rest of the year. We'll probably put out another few episodes, kind of just one-offs on stuff we want to talk about. And then we've got another couple brackets planned for next year that we are really excited about. But we're going to keep those under wraps for now. And by under wraps, you mean we're just going to have a bracket that's just us watching the Mummy movies over and over and talking about them? 
So thanks for joining us for this culmination-ish to our spooky bracket. We hope you join us next week. If you want to be sure to know when that episode goes live, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Podbean, and Spotify. But until then, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.